My name is Michael Fueling. I'm the lead pastor here at the Village Church. We are week three on our series on the Ten Commandments. Uh, If you have a Bible, would you open that to Exodus chapter 20? Exodus chapter 20. Now, I want you to imagine with me one day that Jesus comes to the Village Church to visit in bodily form. You guys excited? Oh, just wait. (laughs) And after some observation, uh, he seems irritated. Uh, In fact, maybe a little angry. So Jesus calls a congregational meeting, and lo and behold, it is packed. It is standing room only. But this, this isn't like earthly Jesus, like you think about in the gospels, this is glorified and resurrected Jesus. Revelation says about him, his eyes are like a flame of fire. His voice is like the roar of many waters. His face is like the sun shining in full strength. From his mouth comes a sharp two-edged sword. And then he begins to speak. And here is what he says. Weekly worship at Village Church must be inclusive of each God of every person who enters. Upon registration for church, the deities you worship must be identified, shared with leadership, and leadership must commit to making a space for each God. Are you uncomfortable yet? All gods must be imaged through icons and statues, elevated and visible to all, myself included. Corporate worship through intimate romantic activity will be introduced into weekly worship for all people of all ages. If you fail to participate in any of these orders, I will curse your children and grandchildren to the fourth generation. I will also put you in jail for a very long time. So this is how he closes his congregational meeting. You're welcome to leave. But atheists are hunting down theists. Christians are dying in droves and you won't make it past tomorrow without my protection. Leave at your own risk. Jesus drops the mic, walks off the stage, out the doors. What are you feeling? What are you experiencing? Shock? Anger? Bewilderment? Confusion? Sadness? There might be some of you who are like, Well, at least I'm protected. Good. (laughs) So the way that would make you feel is probably pretty close to how the Israelites received the Ten Commandments. So you're used to it, aren't you? I mean, our entire culture, Judeo-Western culture, Western civilization was built on the Judeo-Christian ethic rooted in the Ten Commandments. You know this. Your mom taught you the moral side of this law. Don't steal, don't lie, don't murder. Like, you know this inside and out. But if you were an Israelite just freed from 400 plus years in Egyptian slavery, you did not worship Yahweh. In fact, maybe the stories of your great, 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 great grandfather Abraham, their folklore, their mythology now, and you and your family and your people are steeped in this pagan Egyptian idolatrous worship. In fact, it's all you know. It's all you've ever known. 
In fact, when you, when you do it, you believe that the gods you're worshiping to are actually real, that there's a pantheon of gods and they're competing with each other and, and the stronger a god is, the stronger its nation will be. That's why Egypt has the strongest gods because no nation could take it down. No nation could defeat it. And so in your brain, you're offering sacrifices and money and food and time and treasure to these idols and you believe they're real. Then all of a sudden, this invisible Yahweh, I am, enters the picture and in a moment tells you everything you knew about worship is wrong. In fact, it doesn't give you access to me. I am not found at the end of the ways you worship. I mean, this is like life-shattering. And if you think that they are getting it quickly, they're not. I mean, one chapter later, they're building a golden calf and they're accrediting Yahweh with a pagan golden calf, and they're doing really disgusting things. So these Ten Commandments are not going to land well. They're not going to change them quickly. They're not going to love them all of a sudden in a day. In fact, what you're finding with the Israelites is this is a total 180, turn up, their, turn around, their entire notion of worship. This is all completely brand new. Now, I want to ask you just personally a question. Are there ways that you have learned to engage God, which scripture says God cannot be found. So I don't know some of you. Um, I don't know secretly what you believe about some things. I don't know what your spirituality looks like behind closed doors. But the scriptures are really clear. God is very protective about how we worship. Because there are things, practices, ways of doing things. And at the end of that practice, God is not there. And so I want to share with you just a couple of practical things that honestly, there are Christians who participate and approve of these things. And, and I think you'll understand as we go through this. Can God be found in Christian churches where they make icons and then they worship the icons. In fact, these churches believe that God takes up the residence in this painting or this statue or this thing. So they worship the icon as God. Now, here, here's what we know. God doesn't take up residence in inanimate objects. God takes up residence in people made in the image of God. So, no, he's actually not found in the icon because that's not how God takes form or shape. He doesn't do that. We don't worship that. But there are many Christians with good intentions believing that the presence of God has incarnated this object and now you can worship the object and in so worshiping the object, you worship God. Can God be found in the idols of temples of other religions? Um, there are people who profess Christ and, and they believe that maybe somewhere they haven't thought through it all, but like, yeah, by worshiping them, we're kind of all going to the same God. And, and as you read the Old Testament and the New Testament, there's actually no space for that whatsoever. In fact, Yahweh says, not only am I not at the end of that idol worship, but it actually is personal to me and it's angering to me that you would treat me like that. Can, can God be accessed through praying to Mary, for example? And so many people with great intention will pray to Mary, believing that a prayer to Mary gives them access to God. And in fact, we have one way to access God, and it is never through an object. It is never through a, a person in scripture that is an amazing man or woman. It is only 
ever, 100% of the time, through faith in Jesus. That's it. So when, when you come into church, God isn't magically here because it's a church building. If you want God to hear and love and respond to your worship, it is not because you feel emotional, because you love how the words and the melody come together and create emotions inside of you. It's not because you're with other people who believe in Jesus. If Jesus is gonna hear and respond to your worship and you want access to him in that way, it is only ever through faith in Christ, period. That is it. Can God be accessed through wordless chants? Like, ohm? like if, if I just start humming, can I access God in that way? In fact, I so appreciate the way Jesus clarifies when we pray to God, there are ways we are not supposed to pray. In fact, one of the ways we are supposed to pray is with intelligible words to God through faith in Christ. Can God be accessed through repetitious mantras where we say the same phrase over and over again and the repetition of that phrase makes God bend his ear to us? And Jesus says, no, that's actually not how we're supposed to pray. In fact, we talk to God as our Holy Father who loves us and with access of children. So it's interesting as scripture is, is kind of focusing our worship, there are things that God does not permit us to do. So Villa Church, let me summarize. I need you to hear this. There are ways that many Christians have learned to worship and God is not at the end of that worship. But that's not what we want, is it? When we worship, do we not want our worship to go straight to God, to please him, to bring him glory? When I pray, I don't want my prayers just to go into the ether and then like dissipate. I want my prayers to go right to God. I want him to hear my worship and my prayers personally. And the only way scripture tells us to do that is God's way. And God's way now is through Jesus Christ. Period. So if you've trusted in Jesus, I have just great news for you. When you worship, despite how broken our hearts can be, despite that we can be complaining, we, our worship has covered our sin, our struggle through the blood of Christ, and we have a mediator who represents us before God the Father. His name is Jesus. When you pray, and you pray in Jesus' name, it goes to the Father because you have a mediator who is representing you before the Father. You have access to God through faith in Jesus. And so Yahweh is very concerned because these Israelites, if he leaves them to their default practices, their worship and their prayer will never get to him. In fact, they are offensive to him. Oh, Exodus chapter 20, verse seven. Here's, here's what it says, one verse. You shall not take the name of the Lord, your God, in vain. For the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. So I want to answer two questions about this verse. Uh, number one, what is Yahweh trying to protect? And number two, what is Yahweh trying to stop? So let's go with the first question. What is Yahweh trying to protect? I need you to remember something about laws. Laws are created to protect something of great value. For example, do not murder, right? And when there is something of great value, the consequence for breaking the law is also great. So under Old Covenant or Old Testament law, if you murdered somebody, what was the punishment? Death. There was a death penalty for that. So the depth, the level of the punishment shows you the value of what the law is trying to protect. How valuable are human beings made in the image of God? Incredibly valuable. We are incredibly valuable to the point where if you kill one, you are now obligated under Old Covenant law to be killed. 
And so laws are created to protect. And there's something very important here that God is trying to protect. In fact, uh, if you don't protect this, you're going to be guilty under old covenant law. If you somehow take the name of the Lord in vain and don't protect this thing, you're going to be guilty. And there are some actual infractions of this commandment where the punishment is death. Look at verse seven. For the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. So what is he trying to protect? There are multiple things, but the text actually draws our attention to one primary thing, and that is actually in verse five of chapter 20. So just go back a couple verses, and here's what Yahweh says. I, the Lord, remember capital L-O-R-D, all caps is Yahweh. That's his personal name. I, Yahweh, your God, I am a jealous God. Now, right away, God is speaking to them in terminology the Israelites were not used to with pagan gods. The word jealousy is relational. It is emotional. It is passionate. This is actually a really weird category for them to hear God speak to them. And here, here's where they're going to learn that God loves them and desires relationship with them. And when they withhold relationship, it is personal and he is jealous. The Egyptian gods did not want relationship. They wanted contracts. But Yahweh is just proving himself to be very different, very confusing to them. But verse six, he says this, showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. Steadfast love is the Hebrew word has said, and it is faithful, loyal, covenant love. This is very strange again. God is telling them what I am trying to protect through these first three regulations is my covenant relationship with you. So a covenant is the most sacred of commitments you can make. A covenant is a promise made between two people in the presence of God. It is holy. And it's very, very important to understand this. To violate a covenant is to really violate two things. Number one, it's to violate another person. Because covenants aren't made over like silly things. Hey, um, if I give you a Twix bar, will you give me a dollar? That's, that's not, you don't make covenants over stuff like that. Covenants are made in very serious circumstances where two people make promises. And in these promises, our entire life is bound up. Like I'm making a promise that the rest of my life is going to be built around this relationship. So when one party pulls out of the relationship or does something to break the covenant, the other person's life kind of unravels. Because we made a promise to each other in a covenant that for the rest of our life or for the time or the duration of this covenant, our lives are going to be bound together. So when one person breaks the covenant, they unravel another person's life. The, the second thing that happens when you violate a covenant is you willfully disrespect God because a covenant is never about you and the other person solely. God is observing and arbitrating this covenant. And what you do is you enact God's justice when you violate a covenant. So there are many behaviors that harm a covenant, but there seems to be one behavior that breaks a covenant. And so let's talk about the covenant of marriage, a man and a woman covenant with each other for life till death do them part. And there is one specific behavior that when this behavior is committed, it actually breaks the covenant. And that behavior is adultery. Now, when the covenant is broken, the victim has the freedom 
to leave the covenant if they want. Now, if the victimizer is repentant, is it ideal that the victim would turn back in and they would reconcile, which would obviously take a long time, lots of help in the spirit of God and counseling and time. That's the ideal, but it doesn't always happen. Now, I'm not giving you advice on this. I want to be clear because every circumstance dealing with adultery is unique and distinct and you need to get really good counsel, biblical counsel per your individual circumstance. But this is kind of the rule here. When this behavior is done, the covenant is broken and the victim is able to leave. Now, in God's old covenant or the Mosaic covenant, the covenant that he makes with Israel, there is one behavior that breaks the covenant. And that behavior is spiritual adultery or idolatry. That when they turn to a false God and they worship that false God, the covenant is broken. And in this moment, God is allowed to leave the covenant. So again, we said one chapter later, Exodus chapter 21, they are literally worshiping a golden calf right after they receive the Ten Commandments. And God is angry and Moses and God are bantering back and forth and God's like, I'm done. I'm going to destroy them all. And is he just and right to do that by the terms of the covenant? The answer is absolutely. Now, I want to just make a real clear distinction with you. We are not under the old covenant anymore. We are not under the Mosaic covenant. We're under the new covenant, which is a different kind of covenant. This is an unconditional covenant where God promises, I will be faithful to you forever. The moment you enter into this covenant by trusting in Jesus Christ, I am covenanting with you that I will be faithful forever, even when you are faithless, even when you put something else on the, uh, the throne of your heart, even if you worship a false God, I will never abandon you, leave you, or forsake you, period. Thank God you were under the new covenant and not the old covenant. Can I get an amen on that one, right? And the new covenant is the most permanent thing in your life. Just warning, when you trust in Christ, you cannot get away from him. You didn't get it by being good and you can't lose it by being bad. It is permanent. It is for you. God covenants himself in a different way. But we're talking old covenant here and God has every right to walk away when they commit spiritual adultery or idolatry. Covenants are designed to protect lifelong relationship. They're designed to protect this thing. And I just want to be very clear. When God gives any rules, let alone the Ten Commandments, let alone the first three, what is he trying to protect? The covenant relationship. It's like a bad marriage. When the marriage isn't okay, the whole family is in disarray, right? But when mom and dad are together and the covenant is strong and they're unified, really, really awesome things can happen. Does it mean life's always easy? No. But this is the way God designed it. And when you protect the covenant, everybody around the people in the covenant thrive and are happier. God wants to protect the covenant. So I need you to hear this. Uh, the Ten Commandments, you're, you might be tempted to make them just a set of rules. Don't do this, do that. There is something of incredibly high value that these first three commandments are going after. It is the preservation of your covenant relationship with God. That is what he wants for you. The idols... They would never do this. They would never offer covenant. They would only ever offer contract because they were not for the people. They were only for themselves. So this idea of a covenant God, it's nonsense. And then Yahweh comes back, invisible, which is also nonsense. And they are struggling to get their heads around it. Here's the second question I want to answer. What is Yahweh trying to stop? Has anybody ever told you, oh, you took the Lord's name in vain. Oh, 
mom, dad, friends, everybody ever just like publicly called you out just to make you look small ever happened to you? You're like, I didn't even know I was doing it. I didn't even mean that. Like shame, right? What does this really mean? Let's go back to the the commandment at the beginning of verse seven. He says, you shall not take up the name of the Lord your God in vain. Let's start with the words take or take up. To take up is to typically use your voice to speak. It can also mean to to, uh, represent something. But primarily here, this does have to do with the things you are saying. And there is something that they're going to be taking up. And they're going to be taking up the name of the Lord. The name of the Lord is Yahweh. It is his personal name, his sacred name. Uh, He is very protective of his name, his glory, his reputation. And so there's a positive thing here, which is you're, you're going to be tempted to take up the name of the Lord. And is taking up the name of the Lord a good thing? Everybody say, yeah, it's good. Until you get to this last phrase. You can take up the name of the Lord, but do not take up the name of the Lord in vain. And this means in a useless way or a worthless way. So there's a good way to take up the name of the Lord, but there's a bad way. And it's a way that is really ineffective. It's useless. It does nothing for you. In fact, it harms the covenant. In fact, it's probably even going to harm other people. And so again, what's God trying to stop? He's trying to stop any behavior that is going to negatively impact your covenant relationship with him. But he's also trying to stop any behavior that is going to cause other people to think less of him. So I want you to imagine, maybe there's, maybe you don't have to imagine too hard. Like, is there somebody in your home that maybe you speak negatively about on a regular basis? Some of you politicians are going through your minds. Now your kids, they're listening to this, right? And every time you speak negatively about somebody, it's forming in their brains a concept of that person. What's interesting is when the day comes where your kids meet that person, are they skeptical? They they have a filter through which they're processing their entire view of this person. They've never even met before. Like, it's really funny. There there are times when I'll meet people and I'll say, oh, I'm Michael Fueling. And and they'll be like, Village Church? I'm like, yeah. I'm like, oh, you're the pastor of the Village Church. And I'm like, is that a good thing or a bad thing, right? They're like, it's fine. I'm like, okay. (laughs) You know, depends who talked to them, I guess. But it's interesting because we meet people, you meet people, and they have a fully formed view of you and they've never had a word with you. Here's what God wants. When people meet me, I don't want them to have to overcome all of the terrible things you have said about me, you who call yourself my people. When, when, when people meet me, I want them to have a high view of me and high expectations. It's amazing to me how many people will hear Christians talk about their relationship with God or their disappointments with God, et cetera. And it's very interesting when I hear a lot of Christians talk about God, if I were not a Christian, I really wouldn't want to give my heart, my soul, my life to somebody who disappoints you so thoroughly and so regularly. It's interesting because when life is good, we're like, God's amazing, God's awesome, I love God, all glory and honor to Jesus Christ. And then when life gets hard, we're like, we complain and we're bitter and we're angry at God. And we feel very free to speak negatively, almost slanderously about our God when our life doesn't work. And and God is calling us to be Job's. When you lose everything, we say the Lord gives and the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. 
Because what we want people to see is that our God is good. Our God is personal. Our God is holy and righteous, despite how terrible my life might currently be right now. Does it mean we're not sad? No, we actually love bringing our sadness and our grief and our pain and our anger and our disappointment to our God because he, he loves when his people pour out their burdens onto him. I want to show people that even in the worst parts of my life, my God is good and my God is personal. My God is holy. My God is righteous. I want, I want to show them that even when I don't understand a thing about what he's doing, why he takes so long, right? Ever wondered that? What are you doing? Why are you waiting? I want to show them that when I know what God knows, he is going to be an utter genius in all of your brains. When you figure out his plan, you're going to be like, you're the most smartest I could ever imagine. I'm so sorry for thinking I was smarter than you in that moment. Like that's how I want people to think of him. And so he's not just concerned about their personal relationship. He's also concerned about his glory and his reputation so that when, he, when people meet him for the first time, they don't have all of this unnecessary baggage to overcome. So now if I was an Israelite, I would want to know, okay, specifically, um, how do I not violate these? Let me give you just five ways that people commonly can take the name of the Lord in vain. Here's the first. Misusing God's name like a genie to get what you want. Prosperity preachers, you know my uh, lack of affection for the general occupation of, pro of uh, prosperity preachers. Uh, but they treat God like a genie. They, they use his name to invoke things that God doesn't want, God's not interested in, God doesn't care about. They treat him like, well, if, if, if you just give more money to me, then you'll get rich, you'll get healed, you'll get happy, you'll get healthy, you'll get wealthy. And, and it's sort of like a genie approach to God and, and God does not really want to be used like that. Because again, when we do that, we're just using him. Do you like being used by people, by the way? No. You actually want relationship. Now think about your children. God is our father. We are his sons and daughters. I am fine being the parent, knowing that I am the source of provision, of shelter, of food, of clothing, of experiences, of discipleship. I don't mind providing any of that. But what I really want as they grow up is I want to be in relationship with my children. I don't want to just, now they're young. Use me all you want. I signed up for this. Use me. Right? I get it. But what's the ultimate goal? We want, we want to be in a relationship. And it's really hard when your kids grow up and they just use you. You're not a person. You're not a parent who's given your life for them. Right? You're just a thing to be used. And it's offensive. And God is offended when we misuse his name publicly or privately just to get what we want. Here's another one. Disrespecting God's name with attitude. Whatever dad... <laughs> Your kids, grandkids, kids, have you ever done that? You know, have you ever done that to your mom and dad? You might be 70, 80 years old and remember being a kid and dishonoring your parents and then the older you are, probably the quicker they would hit you way back in the day. Okay, Michael. <laughs> like there are ways to say people's name that isn't honorable, that communicates disapproval. I want when people hear the way I say God's name to leave thinking he is good and he is personal and he is holy and righteous. Here's the third one. Misrepresenting God's words in order to manipulate. Like when a kid goes 
to their mother and says, well, dad said we could have everybody over for dinner and sledding. What do you think, mom? Mom calls me. Did you say that? Never had the conversation in my entire life. (laughs) Psalm 139, uh, verse 20 and 21 says, oh God, if you would destroy the wicked, and then you're like, why do you want them to be destroyed? They blaspheme you. Your enemies misuse your name. Here's the fourth one, breaking oaths made in God's name. So in the Old Testament, you could swear by God or Yahweh. And the New Testament actually just calls this whole practice to be done. We do not make oaths in God's name. We don't invoke his name in a promise. Our yes is our yes and our no is no because we are people of integrity. But in the Old Testament, you would invoke the God's name and guess what would happen? They would break their promises. And so when, when people would think of God's name, they would think of promise breakers, unfaithful. And our God is perfectly and always faithful. Leviticus 19.12 says, do not bring shame on the name of your God by using it to swear falsely. I am the Lord. I love his reason, by the way. It's like, don't do this. Why? Because I am the I am. When your kids disobey, why? I am your father. Enough said, right? I am the Lord. Enough said. I am the king of the universe. I want relationship with you. Please don't make me discipline you. I love you. I want to be in a covenant relationship with you. Here's a, a fifth one, affiliating God's name with false religions. It's like this syncretism idea where you have Yahweh worship and then you mix it with other things. And he's like, that is not how we do this. My name is never to be mixed up in the worship or of false idols and false gods. I don't even want my name associated with that. So we find ourselves telling stories about people quite, about, quite a bit. And it's fine to tell stories about people and you hope that they're true stories and your reflections of things are honest and accurate. Misrepresentation, though, is really frustrating because you can't defend yourself. You don't know when it's happening. And sometimes you don't even know you're in it until it's too late. So you'll meet somebody and they've already had this completely formed idea about you and, and you're just being you. But it is filtered through a lens that says you're not a great person. You may not know this, but this happens to most people. You don't just have to be a leader or a pastor or a business owner or a manager. People talk and and you're going to meet people and they're going to filter ideas. There's way back in the day, 2008 for me, that's way back in the day. I was the youth pastor here at Village Church. There's this kid who would come to youth group and I never knew why he came because his dad strongly disliked me, like really strongly. And the core of the dislike was never actually about an interaction we had, but um, the core of his dislike was because I went to Moody Bible Institute for my undergraduate degree. And in his brain, Moody Bible Institute did not preach the gospel. And I don't get it. Moody is like one of the most gospel-centered institutions, never met a pastor, teacher, like just a great place. So never quite understood it, but in his brain, uh, I had a ton of really shady views and interpretations but I was hiding them. And do you know where they all came out? Apparently they came out when I was teaching the students when the adults weren't around. And so I was teaching them my like really bad ideas. So one day I'm teaching on hell. We did a two week series and it was not uncommon. We take really big emotional subjects and our job is to teach the students what God's word says about these things. 
And I said very basic things that the Bible teaches, like hell is forever. If you reject Jesus, uh, you go to hell. That's what the Bible teaches. Uh, There's no second chances. Hell is a real place. It's not a metaphor. Um, We went through this whole thing and what that means. And and then we allowed the kids to process it. They asked questions. They argued. Not all the kids were Christians. It was was just a, a really fun, open environment where you could talk about really difficult things. Well, this kid goes home, says, Dad, you were right. Michael doesn't believe in hell. He thinks it's a metaphor. Dad says, I knew it. I knew it. Writes me an email. I just read it this morning, by the way. Just to double check. Still have it. Writes me an email. And a short version of the email says, I knew it. Gotcha. I knew what you were up to. And I wrote back. I was actually really impressed, by the way. Like, this is a 13-year-old email you know, it's kind of an offensive statement. <laughs> and so like, I was really nice. I just want to be real. like, I was, hey, I'm so sorry. Uh, I shared with this parent uh, my slides because, so back in the day, so now slides are simple. There's a couple words on them. But when you're t- teaching youth group, they're filled with words. So there's no mistaking what I said. And it was funny, my slide titles were like exactly all of my main points. They were consistent, you know? And uh, I think, this is surmising, but I think he thinks I changed them to like make it look better because this kid came home and said, mm, this is what he said. And I didn't. And all of the adults in the room could, could pl- like affirm what happened. And so anyways, uh, I, uh, I said to him, hey, here's, here's the slides. Here's this is what happened. Um, what can we do about this? And he said, uh, you need to apologize to my, to my son. Okay, like, what am I apologizing? I, I don't know what to say. The slides are there. They're literally saying what it is. And, and, and there was nothing that was going to change his mind. But here's, here's where I tell the story. The, the kid would tell me, oh, yeah, my dad doesn't like you. My dad doesn't like you. Oh, yeah, my dad does not like you. My dad just thinks you're up to something. My dad doesn't like you. And it was interesting because the dad talked enough about me. Watch out when you go there. Watch out when you go there. Pastor Michael, Pastor Michael, watch out, watch out. That the kid was now looking for it. And the dad's conclusions about me were so firm that no evidence that I gave him could prove otherwise. To the point where even the kid is in the room hearing simple, clear statements said and written, corroborating each other. And his only conclusion is to filter everything I said through what his dad has been saying about me the whole time. It's interesting because when people meet Jesus for the first time, they could meet the most wonderful, personal Jesus, real Jesus. And it's so hard for people to actually allow him to be himself because of the things that we have said about him, because of the things that other people have said about him. May it not be said of us that we have spoken about our God in such a way that it has made other people have a difficult time when they meet him for the first time understanding who he really is. And misrepresentation affects so many people, bigger than just your relationship. Now, how do you think my relationship was with that dad? Well, it wasn't good because he offended me by misrepresenting me all the time, right? But it also negatively impacted his son, who we could never have a relationship. I could never pour into his life, even though he's there every single week. And now no leaders were able to pour into him because there was skepticism around all of us. And this is just a very common story. There are many people when they meet Jesus, the real Jesus, they don't know if they can trust him because of the things that they have seen and heard and learned from other people who profess Christ. May it be said of us that when you hear me talk about Jesus, that you believe that I believe he is good, that he is personal, and that he is holy. 
May we bear the name and take up the name, take it up. And as we take it up, may people believe that we are convinced of his character. I want to share with you three so what's. So what number one, protect your relationship with God above all else through protecting your worship. I don't know if this is going to apply to one of you or 10 of you or half of you, but as you worship God, ensure that as you take up the name of our God, that it is not mixed with any other false practices that the scriptures forbid. And you may not know what all of those are, and this might be a good Bible study personally for you to dig into and to figure out what are the things that God specifically forbids in worship. Number, uh, number one, protect your relationship with God above all else through protecting your God perspective. If you have a little small view of God, you will treat God like he's little and small. But our God perspective needs to be formed and shaped not by my personal experiences, but by the word of God. And when the word of God declares an attribute of God, I now believe that attribute to be true because the word of God is God's self-revelation of himself. Protect your relationship with God above all else through protecting your influences. This is interesting because um, there is somebody shaping you. I'd love to say that we're all perfect in the word of God. It's the only thing shaping and molding us. But what's really interesting is, do you know who were the primary influencers that would pull the Israelites away from their focus on Yahweh? That would cause them to actually take up the name of the Lord in ways that were insulting and offensive to him? Foreign women. Let me, let me translate this for you, right? Dating people who don't love Jesus when you call yourself a Christian, marrying people who don't love Jesus when you call yourself a Christian is the most sure way for you to be pulled away from your relationship with God and to have that relationship harmed. And here's what we find is that it's very hard to be in a romantic relationship with somebody and not begin to take on some of their practices. So what, number two? Be sensitive to our intergenerational and interfamily cultural convictions. What? It's a lot of words. So there are, there are a number of phrases that one generation will use and subsequent generations find offensive. Can you think of any? Let me share with you one. There is a lovely, godly, older woman in our life, and she uses the words queer and gay closer to the meaning of their etymological original meanings. So she'll be in public. I, that's so queer. I feel so gay today. And everyone around her is like, stop, stop, stop. <laughs> right? Waiters, waitresses, it's hilarious. And she doesn't mean anything by it, right? Like her intentions and motives are good. And by the way, I think intentions and motives matter greatly when you do things. But it's interesting that this phrase is used. And if you're like, I don't know, 70 and under, maybe 80 and under, I don't know. It just lands in this way that kind of grinds your, your soul a little bit. So like younger people, uh, we will say words and phrases that when maybe you grew up, you're like, we could never say that. And they're actually normal and muted. So like there's a, a word, darn it. Who does that bother immensely? And, and in, when I grew up, it was just, it was a word. So I've substituted to donuts, right? But is that okay? <laughs> now, here, here's the fun part. I, I challenge you, have these debates, right? Because I do believe intention matters in how you use phrases. So 
Here's a fun one. Are the following words or phrases sin? Some of you, you're like, I don't know what you're gonna say. You're gonna make me real uncomfortable. Don't worry, this is the G version. Be fine. Literally, that's the first word, G. For some people, that is an offensive term because it's apparently a derivative of Jesus. And when somebody goes, oh, G, it's using the name of Jesus in a way, whatever. And, but when you use the word G, you're like, oh, G Willikers. Like, was there... You're not even putting that together. So intention matters, but that's a thing, right? For some people, you say those words, um, the acronym OMG, even if the G is gosh, is that always sin? Does your intention matter? Like if you grow up and you're in seventh grade and all you know is texting culture, that has no relevance whatsoever to your view of God. It is a mindless phrase. Does that matter? Now, I've got more, but I'll stop there. <laughs> but I, I want to I get back because I know the question that many of you are asking, which is, all right, what are all the things I cannot say? What are all the things that I can't do? Can I just give you a last so what that I think really just brings all this together? Let's focus on what we can do. Phil Church, come. Let us take up God's name. You are free to call on God by name, personally. The Jews had this very weird overreaction to this law. Their reaction, overreaction was, we will never say the name ever, out loud, just in case we accidentally take the name in vain. So their rule was never speak it, never speak it, and God didn't tell us his name so that we would never speak his name. Hi, my name's Michael. You are not allowed to use that name ever. Don't think it, don't say it. What? It doesn't even make sense. The name of God is personal, has been given to us so that we might take up the name, call on God. He loves when his children call on him. When you worship, say the name, be proud, call on your God. You have access to God personally through faith in Jesus Christ. Take the name, use the name, pray to God, beg him, call on him when you are desperate. Call on him when you are filled with anxiety. Call on him when you are burdened. Call on him when you are excited. He wants covenant relationship with you through faith in Christ. And when you trust in Christ, you call on his name with boldness. You call on his name daily, hourly. Pick up the name of the Lord your God. He wants to be heard by you and summoned by you. He loves you. Children, you look at your parents. You say, mom and dad, be that free to call on the name of your heavenly father who loves you and has covenanted himself with you and wants relationship with you and wants to put laws in place that will just stop you from unnecessarily offending each other. Like he wants you to call on him. And so this is what a privilege we have as the children of God with boldness, without hesitation to call on the name of our Lord. So if you, if you want to figure out what are all the 13 rules that I can or cannot say, what about this word and that acronym? Be sensitive, care for one another, know the culture you're in, know the people you're around, be willing to not say things if they're unnecessarily offensive, fine. But let's really make the point of this. The point of this is take up God's name with confidence that he loves you and he wants to hear from you. He wants to intervene for you. He wants to be in relationship with you. Boldly, confidently take up the name of our God. And when you do speak about him, if you wanna just prevent all of the what ifs I take his name in vain, when you speak about him, speak about him in a way 
that makes other people believe that you believe that he is good, that he is personal, and that he is holy and righteous. Now, my guess is that many of you are like, oh no, I have really taken the name of the Lord in vain, like a lot. Are you not grateful for the new covenant that took the guilt of all of our sin and put it on Jesus? That took the punishment for all of our sin and put it on Jesus? You have a God who has declared you not condemned and innocent through faith in Jesus, who has brought you into a better covenant, a better promise, where he promises to be faithful to you and to finish what he has started in you, to never forsake you, to never abandon you. We have a new covenant. So in a couple of minutes, we're going to celebrate communion. And, and if you're wondering where the elements are, they're right under your seat. Feel free to grab them. And this is an opportunity for you to be filled with gratitude and to call on the name of God with thanksgiving. There might be some things that you need to confess. Call on the name of the Lord with confidence that if you are trusted in Jesus, you have full access and he is declaring you forgiven, innocent, and non-condemned. Maybe you're here with us and you are like, I don't know if I should partake of communion. Uh, if you are from a different church, if you've trusted in Christ, partake with us. If you're a kid in this room and your mom and dad are okay with it and you've trusted in Christ, partake with us. If you've never trusted in Jesus and today you are ready to trust in Christ, partake with us. Let your partaking be your personal declaration that you have trusted in Jesus, you have placed your faith in him, and you have now entered into the new covenant where God has promised his faithfulness to you. If you're here and maybe you were dragged here, I don't know, maybe you're searching, maybe you're just examining things and you've never trusted in Christ, our ask is that you not partake because to partake is to make a personal declaration that you are in the new covenant, that you have personally trusted in Jesus. If you're not there yet, honestly, we are just thrilled that you are here with us today. So we're gonna have a time of silence. And uh, at the end of that, I'm gonna read some scripture and then we're gonna partake of the elements together as a symbol of our unity in Jesus Christ. So let's spend some time uh, in silence alone with the Lord. <laughs> 